I think we all have experienced defense attorneys who will say and do anything to get their client off. And this sounds like one of those types. Any attorney always advises their client to write attorney-client protected material so that anybody whose straying eyes might see it will know that this is protected material. So he acknowledged in this post-arrest statement to the police that he had dumped gasoline onto his girlfriend. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer-producer of CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today is... Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hagues, former state and federal prosecutor. Jim, lockdowns are lifting. We're still apart. I start to wonder whether you have coordinated with the governors of <laughs> California and Georgia. My to secret that is out. My secret <laughs> is out, Francie. <laughs> Wow, I thought I had that covered pretty well with that whole thing going on, but whatever, I guess not. However, we are fortunate to have a very special guest. Thank you, Jim. This is Kay Winfrey speaking to you from my dining room. Like most people, I am still at home. I am in Rockville, Maryland, uh, but it's really nice to be able to talk to somebody other than well, nobody. I talk to nobody these days, so I'm pretty excited about being on the show today. So the bar basically was very, very low. low. Well, I didn't mean it that very way, low. but, you know, yeah. That's what I heard. <laughs> sitting right in with us. Although, I don't know, I feel like she's on your side because I'm lovely to talk to ordinarily. Yes, actually, I was going to say, I please, Jim, don't talk about crazy conspiracy theories because I just, <laughs> I, everybody has those these days. So. Okay. Anyway. Well, we'll talk about something different, Kay, because your experience is, I, I guess I used to think I had sort of the, the full package as a former state and federal prosecutor, but you've got the trifecta because you were a state, federal, and you were an assistant attorney general. Yes, chief deputy attorney general for the state of Maryland, actually. You make look bad, Jim. Well, no, not again, really, no. Remember we were talking about low bars? Jump up <laughs> yeah. Nice. Okay. Yeah. But we are, just so our listeners are aware, we are aware that there are very difficult and horrible things happening in the world right now. But we're trying to be a little lighter and hopefully give our listeners a little bit of a respite from the difficulties that we're all going through at this point. So with that in mind, okay, tell us where you were in your career when this particular case that you want to talk to us about happened. Sure. Uh, I'd like to be able to say, uh, going back to what you just said, Jim, that this is a, a lighter moment. It's lighter only in the sense that it happened almost 10 years ago, and it's not something 
any of the listeners hopefully will have experienced. And so it's it's old news, but no less painful to those of us who are involved in it. So I was actually, I became involved in this matter in the end, very end of 2011, 2012. So I was at the very end of my, about another year and a half of my, my eight years as Chief Deputy Attorney General for the state of Maryland. And this was the very last homicide case that I tried. In fact, the last case that I tried. Wow. And what was it that you were doing when you first came into contact with this case? Okay, so as former uh, chief deputy state's attorney in Montgomery County, I attended monthly meetings on behalf of my boss, the attorney general, of the state's attorneys association. They had monthly meetings where all the state's attorneys could get together and talk about common issues. And since I had been one of them, I attended those meetings. And they always were they were very interesting and they had good food. And anyway, the I happened to sit next to Dario Broccolino, who was the state's attorney for Howard County, which is adjacent to my county, Montgomery County. And it is probably a toss-up between Montgomery or Howard being the two wealthiest counties in Maryland. And he asked me about a matter that was pending in my office. It was an inquiry that his office had made. They had had a very odd ruling, which I could get into in a minute, an odd ruling from a circuit court judge in Howard County that she had ruled that they had, that the trial team had to recuse themselves from the, the case. Again, well, I'll get into that in a minute. But Okay, before yeah. you go on, this is yeah. so interesting. I guess maybe you can explain to our listeners and, and me, uh, every state seems to call their judges different things. Here in Georgia, it's we've got state court and superior court, and then you've got the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court. Can you explain what you have in Maryland? Right. So we have four levels. The lowest level are the district court judges, and they are courts of limited jurisdiction. They don't trials. They try minor criminal misdemeanors and civil cases with lower dollar amounts, no jury cases. The next level are the courts of general jurisdiction, the circuit courts. And that's what I was mentioning, a circuit court. And then we have two courts of appeals. The the, the first is our court of special appeals. And then we have the Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in Maryland, akin to what other other states have as a Supreme Court. Okay, great. So you're you're at this meeting and you are sitting next to a colleague in the Howard State's Attorney's Office, Howard County right. State's Attorney's Howard Office. Howard County. He was actually the, the elected state's attorney. And what he wanted to know was if I knew anything about the inquiry that his office had made. His trial team in this murder case had been ordered by the circuit court judge to recuse or excuse themselves. In other words, they would not be allowed to proceed as the prosecutors in the case. And that right there is very unusual. I'm not sure I've ever heard of that case. Very unusual when the circumstances are unusual. So, and that fits into my involvement later down the line. And he, the, the judge had denied a defense motion to recuse the entire Howard County state's attorney's office. She said that that wasn't necessary. So their inquiry that had come to the attorney general's office, to the head of criminal appeals was, if we don't recuse ourselves, the office, and we proceed, how likely are we, will you defend us on appeal if we get a conviction? And how likely would we be to succeed? And I said, I had not talked to my team about it, but I don't know. I just had this crazy, well, why don't I try it for you? If, you know, if you don't have somebody else in your office and just to, to take the issue off the table, 
I'll try the case. And his face lit up and he said, would you? And I said, would I? You know, I'd be delighted because uh, I hadn't tried a case for some time. So that was after that meeting is probably in November of, or December of 2011. Then I got involved in the case. So as, as I say, it's a little bit different than what you've heard from yeah. me sitting in my office in Montgomery County and getting, getting a call from the police. This was one I actually volunteered, really knowing very little about the case. And probably really knowing very little about the quagmire you were about to step into. Uh, yeah, but that appealed to me. You know, I didn't really care about that. So we did talk a little further. Uh, I, I, of course, I had to run it by my boss, the attorney general, but I knew he would not say no. So Howard County let the the circuit court know that I was going to be trying the case. And I went upstairs, I guess, to the criminal division. We had a very small office in the attorney general's office doing actual criminal cases, not the appeals, because there's not a lot of original jurisdiction for criminal cases in the AG's office. So I went to a younger prosecutor who had worked for me and my boss when we were in the state's attorney's office and asked her if she would like to try the case with me. I was For me, that was always something that I like to mentor junior attorneys. And it's always nice to have somebody else's thoughts and and somebody else to share the workload and, and all of it. And she was really excited about it. So her name is Megan Lamarzi, and she and I went ahead and took over the case. You know, Kay, it's, it's interesting that you say that. It, it's really, it's all about mentoring, but it's also about having a trial partner. You know, there are district attorney's offices, U.S. attorney's offices, and I guess uh, AG's offices who have that ability, that sort of luxury of having enough people so that you can always have a trial partner. But gosh, I would have to say the vast majority of cases that I've tried in my career, I've tried alone with just whoever my agent was or my officer or my detective sitting next to me because the places where I worked, simply didn't have that luxury. They were busy offices with massive caseloads generally. And, you know, murder cases got tried where I prosecuted alone. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's doable. Obviously you've done it and you've succeeded. I'm sure there were cases that you wished you'd had somebody sitting by your side, bounce ideas. Could you take this witness, please? You know, Oh yeah. uh, so I can understand that I was fortunate enough in all the murder cases I ever tried to have somebody else's co-counsel. So that was a big advantage. So this is interesting, Kay, because it's very different from the last few cases that you came on to talk about where you were involved, you know, right from the jump where you are aware of, of it when someone has died. But now it's at the point where there's a defense attorney and a trial team being moved to be recused from the case. So obviously someone's under arrest and there's a trial date that is either coming up or is about to be set. So you've got a case right in the middle that you're taking over. Right. Well, the trial date had been set. It was set for February of the following year, 2012. So we didn't have a lot of time. It was not as complicated as some, not as factually complicated as some murder cases, but there were other challenges and we needed to get on top of that. Well, awesome. So, okay. So you, you've agreed to do it. Uh, obviously there's something that has to be filed to allow you to be admitted into that court to prosecute the case and tell us then what, what you did. Obviously you have to get into the the facts and get the case files and tell us all about that process. Right. So of course that motion was filed by the office. I think we had to sign something that was pretty pro forma and the, the other the defense lawyer didn't really have any ability to object. You know, he moved to recuse the whole office and he didn't get that granted, but he got what he wished for. And it's funny because I remember saying, I don't think he's going to be happy with what he got. 
Um, <laughs> so a lot the, because I had a lot more experience than most of the lawyers in the Howard County State's Attorney's Office. And sounds like Dick me. I don't mean it to sound like that, but I was an unknown to him. So, and sometimes it's better to be uh, underestimated. And I think that that happened to him. So as I recall, the next step that we took was to go to the Howard County State's Attorney's Office. So for me, that the whole time that I was working this case, I did not go to Baltimore. So Howard County is much closer to where I was living in Montgomery County. And my co-prosecutor actually lives in Howard County. So this was very convenient for her. And we went to the office. We met with the state's attorney. We met with the two former prosecutors, basically for them to say, here are the files. We can't talk to you. And then I found out a little bit more about why they couldn't talk to me. So you'll remember that I said they had been ordered to get out of the case. They had been recused by the circuit court judge. That's a very, very, very rare thing, obviously. Very rare thing. And, and it doesn't usually happen when they do everything correctly. Am I wrong you here? Would, you would say so. It doesn't usually happen, but this happened. They did nothing wrong and they still got bounced out of the case. So here's what happened it, to make this come about. As you know, and maybe most of our listeners do too, when you're in jail, you have a very low expectation of privacy. Cells can get tossed. They, they, they search them for contraband. Things are taken all the time. All of their phone calls are recorded and up for grabs. As a prosecutor, you can you know, get them all and listen to them. Well, in this case, the the jail officials had searched his cell. The man's name is Richard Rodola, and they had searched Rodola's cell and found some papers that they seized, and they could tell that they were about the case, and they, they were in his handwriting. They turned them over to the state's attorney's office, and there were a lot of ramblings in there, his version of the events, and, you know, just kind of, it, it was consistent with the defense that he presented at trial. And naturally, when you get statements of the defendant, you're required to turn them over to the defense counsel. Well, this extraordinary man, and I use that in not a, I don't use it as a, a compliment, took the position that this was attorney-client privileged material because he had directed his, that, they, that these documents had been prepared at his behest, that he had directed his client to write down his version of the, of the offense. And he testified at a hearing to that effect. Well, that e- either he was a liar on the one hand or completely incompetent on the other hand, because what defense attorney would ever do that? No, and leave it in a cell. That Well, that, I can tell you what I think. I'll put my money on Kay. And that is that he was a liar because... Well, I think we all have experienced defense attorneys who will say and do anything to get their client off. And this sounds like one of those types, but I'm just guessing I'm ahead of you. So keep going. Right. But before we even get there, any attorney who is communicating in writing to any client and wants it to be protected always advises their client to write attorney client protected material so that anybody whose straying eyes might see it, anybody who's part of the justice system will know that this is protected material. And then leave it there. They would have left it alone. Right. Why would he advise his client to, quote, write down a statement and then not advise him to write attorney-client privilege on it? Well, the simple answer is, I'm like, Francie, I don't believe that he did that. I 
and don't believe that it was privileged. I, I also suspect that the judge did not believe his testimony, but it's very difficult when you have a lawyer who testifies under oath that this is what they did to come right out. I mean, they, I've heard judges call police officers liars, but this was this would have been complicated. He was retained counsel, and I think she simply chose to accept his testimony. And on the basis of that, she found that they had this trial team had seen privileged materials that they should not have seen, and that it might prejudice his defense at trial. And that's why she kicked the trial team. Well, and Kay, this is one of those insider secrets. I was talking to some of the guys at our production company about inside trial secrets, things that people don't ever think about or understand what goes on. This is one of those dirty little secrets, I think. If you've got a judge and she believes the defense attorney is lying and she calls him out on it, she has all of a sudden now given that defense attorney a reason to move to recuse the judge out of the case because then the attorney can say, well, judge, you think I'm a liar. There's no way that you can be unbiased in your rulings while we're in trial on this case. I, I deserve another judge. I mean, it's one of those games that defense attorneys can actually play and sometimes play successfully. So it sounds to me that what she did was okay, defense attorney, I really don't have much choice in this, but to say I accept your testimony, so I'm going to dump this trial team, but I refuse to agree to dump the whole office. I mean, that sounds like what she decided to do. That's what she did. And it's funny that you say that he could have moved to recuse the judge. He didn't have to. I don't know how this came about, but it got reassigned to another judge who had, who what? Oh, but this was beautiful. He was the former state's attorney. Uh, and I knew him personally. Oops. That's a big oops. <laughs> kind of like, be careful what you wish for, you know? Right. So that that's the backdrop of how they got kicked off the case and how I put my hand up and volunteered to do it. So Megan and I, as I mentioned, we went and met with the trial team. They showed us where we were going to be, which honestly was a, I mean, they, they're a small office. We literally had what looked like a closet. They had to clean evidence out of it. It, it was, it was fine. It had, I didn't care. You know, we had two desks that we had computers, or I guess we brought laptops from the from the office. We had a window, so that wasn't so bad. And any meeting that we had with witnesses, we met in their very lovely conference room. So it it was fine, and I didn't have to drive to Baltimore. So, mm. it, and the the police station was literally right across the street from the state's attorney's office. The courthouse was down the road, but when we wanted to talk to our officers, we just walked across the street, or they came over to us. So it. The physical layout was fine. So we began the process. Then the first, after we met with the trial team who said, bye, we can't talk to you, we met with the victim witness coordinator who had the very challenging task of hurting the witnesses. So now I'm going to tell you, if you're ready for it, a little bit about the case and why there were witness challenges. So Mr. Rodola and the victim in the case, Pamela Myers, were on-again, off-again boyfriend and girlfriend. They were also heavy drinkers and they were homeless. And the two, there were two eyewitnesses to what happened in this case. And they were a, a couple, uh, a man and a woman who also were heavy drinkers. And she had been babysitting, if you will, this homeless couple who were the eyewitnesses. Nobody had to babysit the defendant. As I mentioned, he was in jail. 
And so part of her challenge had been keeping in contact with them. She would have them come into the office. Every time they came into the office, somebody would meet with them and give them a little voucher for food or something. But they were homeless. And that's a real challenge to keep track of people. Kate, I mean, that's such a great point. It's one of the challenges of being a state prosecutor that is definitely, as a federal prosecutor, rare for something like that to happen. And even when you have to track witnesses, it's just a lot easier. You have a lot more resources. And as a state prosecutor, there's no money to put somebody like that up in a hotel for what could be weeks or months while you're waiting for a case to go to trial. So that's that's the best that they could do. And it's really impressive that they were able to even track witnesses that were homeless. And that is one of the many challenges of being a prosecutor when you've got victims who are even more disadvantaged than, a I don't know if you can call it a garden variety murder victim. You've got a victim who's homeless. And so who's going to be the witnesses? Homeless people. It's terribly right. difficult. And I hesitate to call them alcoholics, but I think they probably were alcoholics, which makes that doubly challenging. And so, you know, we knew that that finding them was going to be difficult. And then they had made inconsistent statements that I had. And, and I knew that was going to be a challenge. But I want to tell you a little bit about the, the facts and circumstances of the murder before we get into what get into the trial, if that's okay at this point. So on the day, I believe that it was October 23rd of 2010, there's this, as I mentioned, Howard County is pretty wealthy, but there is a pocket of homeless people in Howard County, just as there are virtually everywhere in this country. Uh, And these folks lived out in the woods. They had tents and they had you know, a generator. They Everything they had was in these tents. And somehow they always found enough money to put together for vodka or whatever they were drinking. And so on this day, all four of them had been drinking heavily. And somehow Pam and Rodola got into an argument and they were all sitting around in, in lawn chairs. And she made a phone call to a uh, moments before this happened to a friend of hers, she's on a cell phone, and she said, "Oh my God, he's gonna he's gonna burn me." And he had doused her with gasoline that they kept to run their generator. And then he got—I know it's horrible; it's just horrifying. He got a like a big lighter and lit her on fire. And so all of them were trying to put the 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 fire out, which they ultimately did. She was sitting in a lawn chair at the time that he lit the gasoline so that she had 52% of her body was burned, but it was primarily from the the waist down. What a horrifying death. Well, it didn't happen for another three weeks after many surgeries and the kinds of surgeries that people who have been so grievously burned undergo are beyond description. She was in a medically induced coma for most of the time. I, I don't think anybody really knows whether she was conscious at all. That doesn't mean that you don't experience pain. And she uh, she was taken to Johns Hopkins, and that's one of the best burn unit, one of the best hospitals, of course, in the, in the country, if not the world, uh, with a very good burn unit. But they were not able to to save her life, and she died about three weeks after, in November of 2010, about three weeks after the defendant set her on fire. Hey, I have a question. Did you accept this case without knowing these all these facts? I mean, did you volunteer for this case without knowing all these facts? For example, did you know that the victim and the witnesses were homeless? You know, at this point, Francie, I don't remember, but I'm pretty sure 
that Dario didn't tell me anything other than it was a murder case and that his trial team had been recused and wanting to know what our office, what position our office would take if they stayed with the case. Well, kudos to, I mean, kudos to you either way, Kay, because, you know, listen, I'm thinking about this case as a prosecutor and just remembering there are lots of cases where you've got bad evidence and bad witnesses, and that usually results in a bad result unless you can get a plea. I mean, I'm I cannot wait to hear how the trial went. But anyway, sorry, keep going. So you've got the victim who was lit on fire by her sort of on-again, off-again boyfriend and who died three weeks later. Yeah. So after that initial meeting, we started going through the boxes. I think initially we probably, one of the first people that we met with was the lead homicide detective who, he was not good. He was a very nice person. And we didn't realize how not good he was until midway through trial prep, and there were some things that he had forgotten to document. And we all know what kind of problems that poses when things are not documented as they happen. And I knew immediately we're going to have to do a workaround and find a way not to call him as a witness. And we we did. And then we started to meet with other witnesses. We had DNA evidence, and the DNA in this case had been sent to some reason they had not sent it to the state police lab in Baltimore. They had outsourced it to a place in Texas. And each piece of the, there, there were different pieces of evidence. And instead of it all being done by one person, there were, there were four different DNA technicians who were involved in the process of extracting the DNA and doing the replication. Uh, we had only one person who could provide the results. We had to call five witnesses because he would not stipulate to anything in the DNA. Wow. So all of those people, he wouldn't stipulate to anything. He wouldn't, this is the first time it's ever happened to me in any kind of case that you couldn't get one single stipulation. He would not stipulate to the chain of custody of the body. So we had to call the man who went to Johns Hopkins and delivered her to the, the morgue where they, the medical examiner's office, where they What a waste. I mean, that's one of those things. There's just no, there's just no argument to be made in that chain of custody. And it's just such a waste. It was so, I I think it's one of the reasons that I left the department of justice when I left, because I I had finally had enough after 16 years, I'd finally had enough of stupid defense motions and having to just, you know, answer, you've got a signed Miranda form and you still have to have a hearing and write a brief. When you have a signed Miranda form, why are we wasting time on this sort of stuff? So that's just, that's so frustrating, Kay. Yeah, well, we've all had cases in which the defense attorneys are, are literally using every single opportunity at, at communication as an argument, as a defense tactic, as a way to make it more difficult for the prosecutor in hopes that eventually the good prosecutors will go away. And even Francie would. Right. And the the problem with that, well, you know, I had practice in D.C. where if they couldn't if they couldn't beat you on the facts of the law, they went after you personally. So Mm. I was used to that kind of tactic. And he used some of that here. I wasn't that didn't. And, you know, by this time I'm older now, but I wasn't young then, you know, (laughs) so that didn't bother me. But he was just such a I have a lot of words, but he was a not nice person. And by the way, everyone, I just want our listeners to know I haven't fallen asleep or had a heart attack. I'm in case you're wondering why I didn't defend myself when Jim just (laughs) insulted me. I did notice, but I'm so engrossed in Kay's tale (laughs) that I just let it slide. 
Okay, I thought maybe you were just in a self-induced coma. <laughs> maybe I no could have left him. <laughs> so, by the way, he did at the trial, he did in his closing argument, berate me for calling those witnesses. Look at that waste of money. Why, you know? Uh, what? And it, yeah. I thought, why they call those people from Texas? They didn't add anything. I didn't ask them a single what? question. Why what did they do jerk. that? What a jerk. Or my favorite new word. Asshat. I know it's not really new, but it's, you know, I haven't really used it. So I'm going to use it now and call him an asshat. He, he, right. he was. Well, were you able to mention that in your rebuttal closing? I did. And I think what I said was that, you know, unless the parties agree that a witness isn't necessary, we have to call everybody to prove our case. We have to prove every element beyond a reasonable doubt. So I didn't say he didn't agree. I just right. kind of, you know, turn yeah, it on the what, burn hey, You were in an impossible position there because if you had started arguing about what he did or didn't agree to, you know what would have been his next argument, and that would have been your burden shifting and a request for a mistrial. So you have to. That's the that's the one of the most frustrating things about being a prosecutor. People think it's fair to both sides, and it's really not. And I get it. It has to be super fair to the defendant because you are talking about taking someone's liberty uh, or in death penalty death penalty cases taking someone's life. So I understand it, but it's frustrating when you're a prosecutor and you have to deal with that. It can be. So as we went into our trial preparation, we called all these witnesses. Some some people like the gentleman who transported the body to the medical examiner's office. I, I probably just talked to him on the phone, you know, and and we met with um, what because of statements that Rodola had made post-arrest that, that had been litigated before Megan and I got in a case. So we knew we weren't going to use them because it was an accident was his, his explanation. And, you know, I know there's a lot of people who think if a defendant makes statements post-arrest, wow, you got to use them. Well, it, we knew we weren't going to because if we had put those in evidence, then he wouldn't have had to testify. Wait, wait, wait. Okay. So this is super interesting. So post-arrest, he made statements. So he made statements to the police in an interrogation or an interview or whatever it was, where he said that his on-again, off-again girlfriend got accidentally doused with gasoline and lit on fire. Well, it was a little, it was clumsy, but not quite as bad as that. So he acknowledged in this post-arrest statement to the police that he had dumped gasoline onto his girlfriend, but he said he didn't intend to light her on fire. And that when he flicked the lighter on, he wasn't close to her and it wasn't close enough in his view to light the, the gasoline. And it just sort of spontaneously did it. And he never meant to hurt her, never meant to set her on fire, never meant to injure her. He loved her, you know? Yeah. So, so we knew that that was, the, that was going to be his well, defense. Well, that. And, and now, remember when you said we were talking earlier about the intelligence of the defense attorney and how anybody who would advise his client to write out his story should always put the, the disclaimer on the top that this is attorney-client protected. But a defense attorney that would allow that defense? I mean, now I understand. He probably did tell the guy, write out, write out statements. Write out statements. Go ahead. Because this guy has to be a fool. Well, the guy is a fool, but I still think he's a lying fool. Oh, yeah. Um, and of course, I don't know what was in the, the letters or the papers that were seized from the jail because I could never see them. But I do know that he continued to 
tell that story, he would, his mother called him at the jail and I listened to dozens of those calls and some of them didn't have anything to do with the offense, but in others, he would tell the same story. So we fully expected that we had to be prepared for that as a potential defense. And he maintained that, I don't remember what the distance was, but he was some distance from her gasoline soaked body when he lit the, the lighter, flicked the lighter on. Well, okay, this is really, really compelling, but we've kind of run out of time and we can't wait to hear what happens at this trial because it sounds like so many things are conspiring to make this a very interesting trial. As indeed it was. And so what is my incentive to come back and tell you the rest of the tale? You get to see my beautiful (laughs) face and listen to Francie's voice. Hey, hey, Jim, what's with with the insults I put on makeup today? She looks lovely, actually. I was going to say, she has great eyebrows, too. I was kind of saying it the opposite. You get to actually see Francie's beautiful face and listen to my beautiful voice. You both have beautiful voices. That's (laughs) probably good having the kind of jobs that you have. And you're both beautiful. Kay's the best. So we'll have to wait to hear the rest of the story. Until next time, signing off on Best Case, Worst Case. Thank you for listening. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, LA. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wondering. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's d2l.org. the number two, L, dot org. Oh,